Well, good morning, Grace people. And good morning to those of you watching in the Fellowship Hall and online this morning. We are continuing on our journey, a narrative lectionary journey, through the whole story of the Bible. And today we're coming to a particular part in this story. And to put it shortly and simply, it's about the rules. Now, here's the thing. I know a few things about the rules. I've known them since I was a child because, believe it or not, I once played football and baseball. Now, not in the organized sense, not out in a fully organized team. I played neighborhood baseball and neighborhood football. Some of you know what I mean. This was the neighborhood guys who would get together on regular occasions. And one of the things we loved to do was get together and play football especially. Now, sometimes it was 10 guys, sometimes it was six guys, sometimes it was five guys, and you found a way to make it work. We all cared about each other, we were all friends with one another, but you kind of had to adjust the rules as you went along in order to make the game work. I think of one rule in particular, which was the Mississippi rule. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mississippi rule, but the Mississippi rule went like this. Before you could run after the quarterback, you had to count Mississippis. In this particular case, you had to count three Mississippis. Why would you count three Mississippis? Well, because you were trying to give about a three-second delay before you ran after them, and there was no way that anybody could count three seconds accurately, so you forced them to say one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, to slow them down just a little bit, and you'd be surprised how fast you could roll your way through some Mississippis when you needed to get to the quarterback. But we had a variety of those little kinds of rules that you just had to adjust and adapt to. But perhaps the most important one that we had was call your own penalties. If you were out in the field and and somebody was quarterback and they were throwing the ball to you and you felt like the defender got a little too handsy with you, well, you would just say something like, hey, that's pass interference. And the other guy would be like, oh, okay, fine. Usually. But every once in a while, there'd be a little bit of a debate. Oh, I'm not so sure. Oh, you were just as handsy with me. There could be some disagreements. There could be some riling. There could even be some hurt feelings. But you'd get over it. You'd make your way through it. Why? Because you wanted to stay in relationship with one another, even while you were trying to have some rules in the game. Relationships and rules. Rules and relationships. It's a theme that doesn't just play out in sports, it plays out in all areas and aspects of our lives. How do they work together? Well, we find a key part to how they work together in our story today from God's Word. As we continue in our sermon series, Mark My Words, today we are going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. But before we go there, let me share how we got here. Last week, Pastor Angie brilliantly told us and retold the story of the Exodus. Moses, whose name literally means drawn out, has led God's people out of their enslavement in Egypt by God's miraculous power. They have been drawn out of bondage, and God has drawn them into a deeper relationship with him. And in order to keep this relationship, God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. This all happens within the book of Exodus. Now, we're going to fast forward 40 years later. And Moses, 
who's still alive, is about to remind the next generation of this covenant. So listen along to these words, starting in Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. And there'll be a little quiz at the end. Pay attention. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desires on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, who can shout out what that passage of Scripture is referring to? What is it? The Ten Commandments. Good job. For some of you, you might not be as familiar with that passage of Scripture, but that is the Ten Commandments. It's the relationship covenant that God gives his people, commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments. These are the rules that God put in place to remain in relationship with his people. You probably have heard them before. You might have memorized them in Sunday school or confirmation. You might have them printed out and hanging on your wall at home. These are the rules this is the law, and this is good. And all God's people obeyed them, and they lived happily ever after. Amen. No? Of course not. <laughs> Wrong! If that were true, the Bible would have ended after the second book in Exodus. But there are 64 more books. And Deuteronomy is only book number five. And the name of the book actually gives away the entire problem. Deuteronomy. It's a combination of two Greek words. Deutero, which means second. And nomi, which means law. It's the second time that these laws have been given 
to God's people. The first time didn't go so well. The first time in the book of Exodus, as these laws are being given to Moses up on the mountain, the first law, you shall have no idols made before. I don't even think they got done hearing that law given to Moses before, boom, they were off making idols. Do we expect that it's going to get any better after the fifth book of the Bible in Deuteronomy? No. (laughs) This is the second time through Moses that he has to remind God's people of the covenant laws that God put into place, and it won't be the last time. Well, this is the last time that they are put in this specific order and laid out this way, you can bet that the bottom line, foundational principles of these laws will show up again and again and again and again throughout the entirety of the story of God's people. Why? Because of this foundational truth of Scripture. The law is good for people but it never makes people good. The law is good for people, but it never makes people good. Let me start with the first part. The law is good for people. Yes, the law is good. God's law is good. Were we to follow the Ten Commandments, things would go much better in the world. These are basics. Not lying, not cheating. Not dishonoring those who have brought you into this world. Honoring God first. Not cheating on your wife. Not wanting somebody else's stuff and trying to get it from them. All of these things are pretty basic and they are good. But here's the thing. The law can't make you good. And more laws can't make you better. You see, the law calls you out. That's what the law does. It calls you out. It calls you out on your disobedience. It calls you out on your brokenness. It calls you out on your sinful behavior. I remember several years back, I had performed a funeral up here in the Twin Cities while I was serving my congregation down in Morningside. I was asked especially to come up north to serve at this funeral. I did. I had with me everything that I needed, but I needed to make my way on this Saturday after this funeral back to Sioux City. And it's about a five-hour drive, and you sometimes got to kind of get there, if you know what I mean. Well, there was a little detour in the area of Worthington, and so I made my way down this detour path and came to an intersection, and as I came around the corner, I looked both ways and just kind of kept on rolling to make my way off to the right and keep going. That is when the law found me. The lights began to flash in my rearview mirror. I pulled over and went, oh boy. Police officer came up to the side of my vehicle and said, Sir, are you aware that there was a stop sign back there that you just managed to roll right through? I said, uh, No, sir, I'm sorry. I either didn't see it or just blatantly ignored it and rolled right on through it. Well, he looked into my vehicle and 
saw a Bible sitting next to me, saw hanging in my rear view a shirt with a collar and with a jacket hanging over the hanger, and he said, oh, are you from here? I said, well, I'm returning from having done a funeral up in the Twin Cities. I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. <laughs> Police officer looked at me and said, well, said, I'm going to cut you some slack this time because you're fairly new to being back and forth between these places, but just keep your eye out next time. Thank you, sir. And he returned back to his vehicle. I can't say that that was the last time that I ever rolled through a stop sign because that would be lying, which is another one of the commandments. You see, the law is good. It probably prevents damage to property in people's lives. Had there been other vehicles going by that way expecting me to stop and I hadn't, I could have plowed right into the side of somebody doing potentially damage to life. The law is good, but it didn't make me better. Knowing the law didn't automatically make me a better person. Because that's not what the law does. The law calls you out. And here's the worst part. You and I are still convinced that the solution to our sin problem is better laws and better law enforcement. This is what we're convinced of in our own minds. And it shows up again and again. Let me give you again the simplest of examples. Going back to my sports analogy, let's move up to the pros, shall we? Anybody who is a fan of professional football or baseball knows that there are umpires and referees. Back in the day, those umpires and referees were depended on, trusted, and relied upon to get the calls right as best as they humanly could. And the players who were playing in the game would do their best to try and abide by the laws or do their best to hide getting away with when they were breaking the laws and the penalties. So what have we done? Well, now in the age of television and instant replay, we can call out to a higher authority. Well, we don't trust that the referee or the umpire is really getting it right. So instead, we want to see it for ourselves. So we'll have the instant replay. We'll show it over and over again. We'll look at every different angle to try and see if we can just get this right. And it has improved the game tremendously ever since. Suddenly, nobody has any complaints whatsoever about any of the calls being wrong. Our human instinct to try and get it right runs right up against the fact that we are broken sinners. And the law points it out every time. When it comes to our relationship with God, you and I don't need more laws. We don't need better law enforcement. We need the gospel. And we need better grace enforcement. This is what we need Listen, you can try harder to keep the law. You can make promises to God to do better and try harder. But in the end, I know you because I know me. You won't. You won't. You will break the law. You will break your promises. 
and you will end up right where you started. We don't need better laws. We need a better promise. That's what we need. The promise is God's grace offered to you through his son, Jesus. And by faith in him, we receive a whole host of promises. You see, God's good law drives bad people to his good promises. That's what it is meant to do in us. The law doesn't exist to make you better. The law exists to remind you that you aren't any better on your own. So that you would turn to the one who loves you and will rescue you from yourself. And that's exactly what he has done. And we are called to believe his promises. God's good law drives bad people to his good promises. That's the good news. Because relationship has been restored by God, not by you. The rules can be seen in an entirely different light. The light of Christ and his promises. So with that in mind, I want to share with you five promises that Jesus gives to you today. And you'll find that they have parallels that we find right in those Ten Commandments. Here's the first one. Number one, you don't have to work yourself to death because God has promised you rest. You don't have to work yourself to death because God has promised you rest. Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus reminds us that man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for mankind. Rest was made for you. There is a promise in God's word of rest for you. A rest from your work. This is God's promise to you. Some of you need some rest today. I need to hear that promise. Here's another promise. You don't have to be alone because God has promised you a family. Loneliness, as we have said repeatedly, and it seems to be a theme that has come up again and again over even these last few weeks, loneliness is an epidemic that is striking people everywhere across every generation. But you don't have to be lonely because God has promised you a family. Jesus says these words in Matthew 12, verse 50. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. That's a promise from Jesus. You have a family, a family of brothers and sisters who sit around you right now. A family that goes far beyond even this congregation. But all of those who call upon the name of Jesus are your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You have a family, an eternal family that God has called you into because Jesus makes us family. And whatever spirit of loneliness or disconnection is over you today, I speak that promise in Jesus' name to you. You do not have to be lonely because Jesus has promised you a family. A third promise. You don't have to fight your neighbors because God has promised you peace. He has promised you peace. That most beautiful of words. The word is shalom in Hebrew. And it means a richness of peace, right relationship, blessing upon your life and upon the lives of your neighbors as well. Jesus speaks these words from John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, the anger and the rage that we see that is breaking down our society left and right, it won't be fixed by a better law. It will be fixed by a promise from God that if we will come humbly and submit ourselves to him, he will give us his peace, a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that you can extend to your neighbor, a peace that you can pray over your neighbor, a peace that would break the back of hostility, a peace that would overcome fear because anger is always a secondary emotion, often driven by fear. Jesus has promised you peace, my brothers and sisters. Hear that promise from him today. A fourth promise You don't have to take from others because God has promised you abundance. In John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. It is the opposite spirit of this age. I know you have needs, And those needs are real, and I would not diminish them for a minute. Real needs, real needs for your daily bread. They may seem overwhelming to you, my brothers and sisters, but there is a promise from God, a promise from Jesus himself, that in those places where the enemy wishes to come, steal, kill, and destroy from you, you don't have to act in the same spirit but instead can receive from Jesus his promise of life and life in abundance. And that abundance wells up in generosity in your heart towards your neighbor, towards your family, toward the world around you, and yes, towards the congregation, God's vessel for blessing the world. You don't have to take from others because God has promised you abundance. And fifth, 
you don't have to live in shame because God has promised you forgiveness. He has extended this offer to all who believe and trust in him. Matthew 26, 28 says this in the words of Jesus. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Folks, this promise is backed by the blood of Jesus himself. In a few moments here in the traditional service, we will make our way to the table where we will receive that body and blood of Jesus. Let it be a reminder to you of the promise of God, of his forgiveness offered to you. All of us do shameful things. All of us do things that are worthy of the judgment of God. What can we do to escape this judgment? The answer is nothing. But believe. Believe in the one who was sent to die for your sin and for mine. That the blood of the covenant has been poured out on you and you have been forgiven. That is a promise of God from his word for you. All of these promises are received by trusting in Jesus. You may need to have heard all of those today. Or there may be one in particular that stands out to you. I'm going to repeat them just for you to hear them. And I want you to set your heart at ease and receive the promise that God has for you today. You don't have to work yourself to death because God has promised you rest. You don't have to be lonely because God has promised you a family. You don't have to fight your neighbors because God has promised you peace. You don't have to take from others because God has promised you abundance. You don't have to live in shame because God has promised you forgiveness. We're going to take a moment and pray. And as we set our hearts in prayer, I would invite you to pray over the course of this next week, being reminded of these promises. If there's one that specifically you feel applies to you and the place that you are in right now, bring it before the Lord. Say, Jesus, I trust you and you promised. And set your heart in faith in the one who is the ultimate promise keeper for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, here we are, Lord, as your gathered people, broken sinners, beggars, seeking a scrap of bread from your table. Those, Lord, who know how far we've fallen but who trust today, Lord, that with a word you can heal, 
with a word you can provide, with a word you can save, with a word you can bring peace, with a word we come into family with you, with a word you can give us rest. So Father, in Jesus' name, would you come by your Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with faith, Help us, Lord, to trust more deeply. Help us, Lord, to see your law not as something that we have to do, but instead, Lord, as filled with the promise that we get to love you and we get to love our neighbor because you loved us first. We get to offer forgiveness to our neighbor because you have forgiven us first. Help us to rest in you. Thank you for your promises, which in you, Jesus, are yes and amen. And to that, we say in your name, Jesus, amen.